Oh, hey, kiddo. How was the hill? Educational. Oh, learned a new trick? Yeah, the trick to a happy, fulfilling life, maybe. I learned that mountain air unleashes my inner peace. And rip and pow, well, the whole crew's all, you induces spontaneous joy. Okay, uh, that's nice. The Icon Pass lets you do you at 50 destinations worldwide from 249 Adult. Drop in for next winter now and save at IconPass.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the WIM Podcast. Women in Influencer Marketing, or WIM for short, is a first-of-its-kind exclusive networking group made up of inspirational women. Our mission is to network, to foster leaders within this exciting industry, and to share information to make our work stronger. This podcast is where we explore influencer marketing, advertising trends, and get real about women in business. We'll bring you fresh perspectives on timely topics facing the industry from expert voices in the space. Find us wherever you download podcasts. And of course, you can always find us at IamWim.com. That's IamWim.com. Today, we're speaking with Lauren Carlson, Director of Brand Partnerships and Head of the East Coast Retail Development Team at RewardStyle, the first and largest invitation-only end-to-end content monetization platform for top-tier digital style influencers and brands around the world. You probably know their product like to know it, which allows a consumer to shop an Instagram feed with ease. Who doesn't love a great tool that makes our lives easier, right? Lauren has extensive experience in content creation and the evolution of content monetization and the role that influencers play in brand marketing and development. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Excited to have you here. So I'm curious, uh, and I think everyone listening is curious as well, tell us a little bit about your journey to influencer marketing and your career path, and what attracted you to this industry in the first place? Sure. Um, So I'll start with the last question, I guess, um, in terms of what attracted me. I think that I've always been obsessed with content, which is is sort of a broad statement, but growing up, I was really into writing and I would, um, I was a journalism major in college Mm -hmm. and I, you know, for a while thought that I wanted to start my own blog, not a fashion blog. Um, (laughs) I do not claim to have the best, the most fantastic style, but I really just wanted an outlet for my writing. And so kind of got started in that space, but through that became attracted to, um, other, other bloggers and found, you know, people like Cup of Joe who are more lifestyle and they talk a lot, they share a lot about their life and their story um, on their platforms. And I think just general storytelling is always really interesting to me. I find that I am attracted to people more when I get a chance to actually sit down and listen to them and hear their story. And um, I think that this space, the internet, um, blogs, and now Instagram and other platforms are really amazing and that they enable people to share their stories and really connect in meaningful ways. Um, and so I think that's really what makes me, what drew me kind of, I think, to the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've actually been in tech since I graduated. So I majored in journalism mm-hmm. and I graduated in 2009. Me too. Okay. 2009, nice, yeah. nice. We so. were talking about that Oprah yeah. reference before we got into this podcast. <laughs> exactly. We're both fans of Oprah. Love her. And we were saying, oh, it's rare that people in this industry are old enough to have watched Oprah. So you have to be – have graduated in 2009 or – before. Right. Exactly. And <laughs> after that, it's like question marks. Like never Oprah? seen it. Oprah? <laughs> Who's that? Yeah. Go um, on. I interrupt you. <laughs> no, no. But I um, – so graduated in 2009 and there wasn't a market for much at that point, but definitely not for journalism. No one wanted to pay me to do anything. Um, and so I was in Austin and Austin is sort of the, you know, um, Silicon Valley of the Southwest. Mm-hmm. And so I – Literally found my first job on Craigslist. I love that. (laughs) Yes. And um, it was in CRM. um, Mm -hmm. And I did not know what CRM was. But I went in and I I went and had an interview. It was in the guy's house. And for Um, those who may not still know what CRM is, what is CRM? Yes. It is – Client relationship management. Okay. Great, um, and great. so it's, it's a type of software. Great. Perfect. And, um, I think I called it CMR for the first week that I worked for them. <laughs> RMC. Exactly. I changed it up a little bit. Yeah. I put a little bit of flair on it. Oh, nice. Um, but so I, I got started there and I was actually a content writer for this website and I was writing about, um, 
uh, writing about software, mm-hmm. if you can imagine a more dull thing. Um, <laughs> but I was just grateful to have a job. And so I was doing that for a while. But through that, I got to actually interview a lot of experts. And I was doing a lot of my writing was really more kind of a journalistic form. Um, and I found that I did that for about four years. And I found that the most exciting part of that job was not sitting behind a computer and writing all day. And it was actually having the conversations and meeting with people. And if you've met me before, you know that I'm an extrovert. Um, and so I love just like being out and talking with people and having those conversations. So I did that for four years and then realized that about myself and then looked for something that would kind of give me an opportunity to be more client facing and to have something, um, that fit my skill set better. And I sort of fell into reward style. Um, like I said, I already had the general interest, but one of my best friends um, was previously working at Bain Consulting. Um, she was brought on to reward style by Amber Vence because they went to SMU together. And she was brought on to start their sales and marketing team, which was a misnomer at the time. I don't think anyone, we, I don't, I never did marketing, but I was brought on the marketing team. <laughs> um, And yeah, and so she was tasked with building her team and she convinced me to move to Dallas and work with her. And so I went and had like drinks with Baxter and he liked me and (laughs) the rest was kind of history. And so how was that transition for you? I mean, it had to have been, you know, moving cities and, you know, transitioning, you know, careers to a certain extent. I mean, how was that transition for you? I was super excited about it. I was less excited to move to Dallas from Austin. Mm -hmm. I was a diehard Austinite. They brainwash you there. Um, (laughs) it's all the, it's all the breakfast tacos and, um, and great outdoor space, but live music and live music. Yes. And I loved my life in Austin, but I was so, um, done with my job. And I think when I first got it, I knew that it wasn't for me, but I wasn't in a position to, you know, look for something else or really take another job. I was just lucky at that time, as we all were, to, like, have anything. I was just going to say, you graduated in a difficult time for exactly. job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Difficult economy. And I and I paid for college myself, like, through student loans. And so, I, you know, those bills came right after you graduated. Yep. And that was a good lesson to learn, though, I think, is that, like, you can really do anything um, if you need to. And you just, like, if you work hard, you can make it work. And it's okay if you don't love your first job out of college, because I definitely didn't, but I learned a lot of good lessons there. So I was really so excited to make the move. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in terms of a career shift, it was one that I was chomping at the bit for and excited about that opportunity. And RewardStyle was a startup, but the company I'd come from was also a startup. Mm -hmm. So I was very comfortable in that um, with a lack of structure and kind of quick changes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then moving cities. I'm from Dallas originally. Okay. So um, I actually moved back home, back into my old bedroom initially because it was a quick transition. And how was that? It was a humbling experience. <laughs> <laughs> humbling is a good word, humbling, right? Humbling, yeah. It was but it, good. It, you know, it, uh, it, uh, it teaches you a lot, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Right? It was it was great. I mean, it would put me in a great position to not be stressed about – I think I only lived at home for maybe the first six months and just kind of took my time getting acclimated and um, getting used to the new job. But – any anytime someone can live at home, I'm like, there is no shame right? in that no game. Shame. Like, do it if you have parents and that support system that'll let you do it, and Absolutely. you can save money. Like, why not? Absolutely. If my parents would let me and my fiance move back in, <laughs> you're like, so I'm gonna do my laundry and mm-hmm. like give me a hug all the time. I know. <laughs> How could you say no to that? I know it's humbling, <laughs> but it's also amazing. Like when I moved out, I think I still would go back home on Sundays for dinner and do my laundry. Yeah. Until I was probably like 28 years. Yeah. Old. Until <laughs> I moved to New York. <laughs> I love it. And then your parents followed you here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great though. And I love what you said too that you know. Um, you don't have to love your first job. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty powerful thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just taking myself back to, you know, having – when I just graduated college and there's so much pressure, you know, that you studied four years and you – I'm sure everybody's asking you, you know, what's at, what's next? Like what's after school? And you have all of these hopes and dreams for yourself. And then reality hits, you mm-hmm. know, what's available, um, you know, the job market might be difficult at the time, potentially. Um, there's a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. And academia only sort of prepares you for what it prepares you for. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone, a lot of people have a dream job in mind. Yeah. But we don't realize a lot of times that there are so many steps that are going to need to come before you actually get that dream job. Yeah. Um, and 
and, and especially I think that there was, you know, graduating is a humbling experience because I was used to being, you know, I did well in school. I was super involved. I was like head of some organizations. And so I felt like a big fish in a smaller pond. Mm-hmm. And then I got thrown into the big pond and mm-hmm. realized that I didn't actually have any real experience. You know, yeah. I was really good at being a college student. Yeah, girl. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's – and so just – realizing that it's okay to take those steps and it's okay to not have the dream job when you graduate. And it's interesting because you, when you talk about a lot of the origin stories of some of the bigger influencers, um, like to know it actually just released a book where we um, talked about, I think there's a hundred influencers profiled in the book and talking about their origin story of how they got started. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were doing jobs that they didn't love. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe it was a first job or maybe they just got, they got stuck in a certain industry or a certain role that, you know, you look up and it's three years later and you realize like, oh, wow, I, I still don't love this. I'm not inspired. And that's where a lot of influencers got started because they realized I want to do something different. And maybe that traditional role doesn't exist. So I'm going to carve it out on my own. I'm going to start my own blog. I'm going to start telling my own story, um, which I now when I think about the industry – what I love about it is that it really is a bunch of individual entrepreneurs, male and female, that are starting their own businesses and telling their own stories. And it's such a unique opportunity. And I just – I'm so impressed when people take advantage of that. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, first of all, it's – you know, being an influencer is the epitome of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, part of the reason, you know, I ask influencers, I ask people in the industry – how did you end up here today? No one studied this in school. No one's parents right. said like either you can be an influencer or you can work in influencer marketing someday. It wasn't something that existed. So I I love the people who work in this industry for so many reasons, but mostly because they're they're dreamers and they think outside the box, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the time. Um, but I also I really want to dig in a little bit deeper to you know, the the path to where you're going. You know, um, again, I, I feel like whether you're on the creative side or the industry side, our side, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you you have to have so many different skill sets. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, what you learned from whether it was being a journalism major mm-hmm. to, you know, your first job working, you know, at a, a CRM. Um, and, you know, talk to me about those skills that might not necessarily seem transferable to where you are today, but absolutely you used uh, in your role at Reward Style. Totally. Um, a big part of my role uh, now and really, I guess, has been from the beginning is client interface. Mm-hmm. And, um and knowing just how to speak to people and how to be a good listener. And I think that that's something that definitely through journalism, you interview a lot of people. And I was always walking around with a recorder and, you know, having these conversations and knowing the right kind of questions to ask and being able to sit back and listen. And again, I'm a chatty Kathy. So that was always a hard that was a hard lesson for me to learn. But I found that if you give people time to speak and to you know, let them know how you feel, then you're really going to get a full understanding of what they're looking for or their story. Mm-hmm. And so from a client perspective, um, I I love working with – I love working with client, like with my clients mm-hmm. and from both on the influencer side and the brand side. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot more brand-facing stuff, but earlier on I was doing a lot more influencer-facing Um but really just digging into their needs and not going in and assuming that you know what they want. Um, cause every, sometimes, sometimes your assumptions are right. Like there are, you know, a lot of people, every brand has goals that they need to meet. Like sure. sales are a given. There sure. are certain things that they are looking for. Um, but learning how to ask the right questions and be a good listener and let them just talk and not talk over them was a huge lesson that I think is applicable to our industry and to literally every industry. Absolutely. Um, even interpersonal relationships. Oh my God, you just like, read my mind. <laughs> yeah. Like this is good things to do with your friends, your yeah, family, significant yeah. others. Yeah. Um, but that, I think that that's something that I consistently, and when I, I have, I manage a team of all young women, which is such a unique opportunity, um, for me and something that I really, a, a part of my job that it's, I'm not really necessarily measured on, but I, I love it. And I invest a lot of time into it because people invested time in me when I was younger. And I think that I grew a lot from that. And um, one of the big things that I tell them is 
ask questions, and then when you ask the question, just sit back and listen Mm -hmm. um, and let them talk because you'll get all the information that you need. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that they're, like, concerned about saying or asking, let the silence sit for a little bit, and then it's going to come out. And, yeah, and just, like, those sort of, like, lessons, and it's something that I think you don't learn until – you know, you learn by, I guess, like by practice over time, but it's yeah. it's definitely a good one to to figure out earlier rather than later. Definitely, I remember at you know internships that I had, and I I don't know, I'm a curious person sometimes to a fault, mm-hmm. and so with you know going and having so many different internships, I would take each person who worked in different departments out to breakfast or to lunch and just like love to pick their brain about Mm -hmm. so many different things. So a curiosity, I feel like, will get you so far. But coupled kind of with what you're saying, I think, is like the magic, right? It's really asking the right questions and truly, truly listening. Absolutely. And to your point, I think another big thing is – not being intimidated by people. Mm-hmm. Um, I this industry in particular, I think there are it's a, it's a young industry. There are a lot of people um, who are in positions of power that, like, I mean, like ourselves, we're like we're more senior people in the industry, and we're like OGs, if you will. Yeah. But we're in our early 30s. Like we're not, you know, we're not 50 years old. We haven't been doing this for 20 years. And but sometimes you're sitting at a, at a in a conference room with somebody who is that, who, somebody who is the CMO of Coach or Ralph Lauren or something, and it's easy to be intimidated by that. But I think um, just understanding your value and trusting like what you're bringing to the table is something that they're looking for is always what I try to I like kind of level set before I go into those meetings and have to tell myself. You are experienced. You you are actually one of the best at what you do. Mm-hmm. This industry hasn't even been around for that long, mm-hmm. so we are kind of the experts. Mm-hmm. And um, and these people wouldn't be bringing you in unless they wanted to hear what you had to say and, like, giving building up your confidence in that way. Absolutely. And also, I don't know, I love to mentor young men and women, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of women in this industry. And I think there are lots of – you know, we talk about this in WIM a lot, you mm-hmm. know, about – you know, just like women's issues in the workplace and, and you know, ways to navigate all of that. And I think that one thing that I like to instill in young women is the idea that, you know, all of these nerves and all of these, you know, oh, I'm so nervous to go up to that person and what if, what if. But I always like to tell people, which I think is so true, like, People are so flattered when you come up to them and mm-hmm. want to learn from them. Totally. You know, so I think that it's also the way that you present it. I always – I think that it's being respectful of people's time is one thing because if Absolutely. someone is pretty senior, you know, don't expect that they're going to be able to talk to you for an hour right then when you walk into a right. room. Go through, you know, whoever – books their appointments, do it in a really respectful, professional mm-hmm. way, but also just know, and hopefully this will alleviate some fears, people love to know that they're respected and that their opinions are are valued and that you want to learn from them. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if it's approached in that sort of a way, the worst thing you're going to get is a no, but more likely you're so going to get a yes. You're so going to get somebody absolutely. who's like, oh, absolutely, let's chat. I'd love to. It's a feel-good opportunity for the person who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Well, and you mentioned curiosity, and I think having that curiosity and asking people to sit down and asking them about themselves, everyone loves to talk about themselves. They do. <laughs> they do. They and do. and so if you – it, you know, if you do have the time to meet with those people, um, you gave the example of sitting down and having coffee with different people who are higher up and um, and asking the right questions that are more focused on them and asking them about how they got to where they are and what their favorite part is about their job and what their challenges were, et cetera, et cetera, um, then versus how do I get to where you are? How do I, what do I need Absolutely. to do? And like really focusing that curiosity toward them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that everyone is going to be so open to that. And then from a client perspective, not sitting, you know, sitting down and saying, what are you struggling with? Like, what are your challenges? What are your goals this year? And mm-hmm. what do you, what have you been doing in the past? What's worked? What hasn't worked? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and they're going to want to talk about that and, you know, vent about that. And then it gives you the opportunity to say, 
okay, so here's what I think that I can do. Yeah, I love it. I just think that the the overarching message of the past five minutes has just been to really, you know, listen, mm-hmm. to ask the right questions and sit back and listen. Mm-hmm. And you'll be really surprised at what you hear um, and pleased. Um, so, yeah, so uh, – I let's get a little bit more into reward style. Right. I love what you guys do and I would venture to say that a lot of influencers really love what you guys do because they're able to, you know, make a, a very comfortable living from it. Um, it's it's an additional source of revenue for a lot of them. Um, so, you know, talk to me a little bit about the monetization piece of it, like specifically multiple revenue streams. It's so important to influencers. So, in regard, in terms of reward style, break it down for us a little bit. Like, how does an influencer make money from reward style? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think what's great about reward style is that we were started by an influencer, mm-hmm. and we always say, you know, part of our mission statement is that we are. We still are – our goals are to help influencers monetize their content and, you know, the influencers are in our mission statement and that continues to be our focus. Mm -hmm. Um, And really our our goal is to make sure – and to the point that we talked about earlier where influencers are maybe starting their blog from a side job, they're entrepreneurs. A lot of them are learning this stuff on the fly as they go. You know, they don't come in as like a web developer and, you know, a content expert or a photographer. I've never heard that. Right. (laughs) That's very rarely the origin story. Story. Yes, right. um, and so they're learning all of that. We wanted we designed a platform that makes it easy for influencers to really just kind of it's a vehicle they can get in, turn on the key, you know, turn the key and go. Mm-hmm. And so um when an influencer is on reward style, they're able to use trackable links. Mm-hmm. We've developed relationships with over 3,000 brands um, globally. And so rather than them having to go individually to, you know, a Kate Spade or a Bloomingdale's or a Nordstrom and say, oh, I'd like to use your links on my blog and I can, you know, hear my stats, here's, you know, my value that I can add. Um, we've already built those relationships and we've negotiated great commission rates for those influencers so they can easily go in grab links, share them on their blog. Through our Like to Know It tool, they can share it on Instagram um, as well and drive traffic and sales through that tool. Um, And they're able to then you know, engage with their audience in an organic, real way. And those links that used to just be to a Bloomingdales.com are now a reward style link to Bloomingdales.com. Their readers don't notice any difference. You know, they're still driven to the website, but then that tracking's on the back end and we can then see what tra- those traffic and sales look like. And we can reward the influencer for the sales that they are driving for these brands. I love that. Um, and they have an, accred- an incredible ability to to do that, obviously. Um, the entire industry is built around that. Mm-hmm. And uh, – in addition to that, so that's kind of on an organic level, but also as the industry has evolved, there are a lot of brands that are really interested in developing more dedicated partnerships with influencers. This is a lot of what you do. More and more, it's a lot of what I do, um, helping brands develop programs where they are working with dedicated influencers and paying for specific content around um, a specific story they want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, holidays coming up, we're working with a lot of brands around their holiday story and partnering with specific influencers who can tell that for them. Mm-hmm. And so that's another area where influencers can earn, obviously, um, creating dedicated content for those brands. And so how does an influencer uh, begin with the organic content? Because I feel like, well, here's a question. How does an influencer get started in your network? Are there sort of metrics? Can any influencer just, you know, have access? How do they begin in the network? Yeah, great question. So there, obviously, there's a, there are a lot of options out there for influencers who are looking to monetize. Mm-hmm. Um, and many influencers actually work with multiple companies. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with Reward Style, um, while our focus is on our influencers, we also, um, we make a promise to our brands that when they get on reward style, they're opening themselves up to a network of influencers that have an ability to drive traffic and sales for their brand. Mm -hmm. So when influencers are looking to get on reward style, we look at a number of things. We look at obviously the quality of their content um, and it doesn't need to be super editorial style, you know, mirror selfies are fine, but as long as they they? are, (laughs) for some people, you know, it's insane. We have, there's some influencers out there that do the mirror selfies Mm -hmm. and people love it. It's, they think it's authentic and it's real and, you know, that translates to for certain audiences, which Very is amazing. True. Very true. Um, but we look at the quality of the content. We look at, you know, frequency of posting. You can't just be posting once a month. That's not really realistic. Um, 
ideally at least once a week, if not more. We also look at engagement. Um, you know, the only reason that a lot of these influencers are successful is because of the audience that engages with them and reads that content. If no one was reading it, then it would just go into the void. Um, so we want to make sure that we're partnering with influencers who are invested in their audience. They're responding to comments on Instagram. They have, you know, if they have a strong follower count, are those followers actually commenting? And, you know, so is it an authentic follower count? And then are they engaging with them? And when an inf- when a reader says, you know, does this shirt come in blue? They are, they give them that information mm-hmm. um, because we want to just make sure we, that those are behaviors of successful influencers and that's where we want to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole, there's a group of, you know, KPIs really that we look at mm-hmm. for influencers when they apply. Um, what but- would you What would you say are the top three uh, descriptive words of a, a successful influencer in in reward styles eyes? Oh gosh, um, I think it would be engaged, mm-hmm. um, dedicated, mm-hmm. and authentic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we want people that are real people telling real stories, engaging with real readers, mm-hmm. you know, not like buying followers mm-hmm. and um, and people who love what they do, because I think if you love what you do, it's going to come out in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to show in your content. And question for you, because you brought up a very timely topic of, you know, buying followers. Mm-hmm. So do you, how, how do you guys uh, how do you guys, you know, avoid working with influencers who have bought followers? Do you guys have a certain process that you go through or certain tools that you use to sort of, you know, vet through um, certain influencers to make sure they have an authentic following? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that th- the interesting thing with buying followers is that it's an expensive endeavor that doesn't pay off in mm-hmm. the end because, if you're purchasing followers, it's not going to show in your engagement. You know, if you see that somebody has a million followers and they've only got, you know, a thousand likes on that post, there's no way that that's an authentic um, follower count. Yeah. And so a lot of times it's very easy to kind of see those things. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what's also interesting is that with reward style, whenever we're working with brands um, on a paid content basis, when they're doing dedic- when influencers are doing dedicated content mm-hmm. for brands, we whenever we're selecting those influencers, we back everything up with data. Um, and that's a unique aspect of working with reward style. And so and because we've been around for so long, we have a lot of historical data on these influencers. So and we also have like to know it, which is gives us insight into the engagement specifically on Instagram on their social channel. Mm-hmm. And so if we have an influencer who is is using like to know it and we're not seeing that engagement but she has so much like she's a really high follower count or he has a really high follower count mm-hmm. that's going to be a trigger to us that maybe there's something up with that mm-hmm. and at the end of the day if they're not driving traffic and sales mm-hmm. they're really not going to show up on our radar so the influencers that we're casting um and that and not to say that you need to be driving 50,000 a month mm-hmm. you can be driving meaning, meaningful sales we cast micro influencers all the time but it's kind of like the proof is in the pudding like we will see it in the day Data mm-hmm. if that if that follower count isn't authentic. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of because we back everything up with data, it is really actually pretty easy for us to confidently cast influencers knowing mm-hmm. that the readers that are reading that content, the followers that are liking that content are real people. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And it makes a lot of sense because I actually feel like from an influencer's perspective um, or from a manager's perspective, we've used reward style data before to show, you know, other brands the value of influencers, you know, because there are only so many tools out there where you can really show, you know, affinity towards sales Mm -hmm. and like actual sell through rates. Um, And so if they're part of a great network like reward style, there actually is hard data there that we can show, um, which has proven a lot of value um, Mm -hmm. in the past and, and continues to. So I appreciate that you guys are such a data-driven company. And like you said, you've been around for so long that there's like real historical data there too. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, And so, you know, so again, so we have like certain metrics um, that you look for for influencers to join your network. Um, And, you know, you've described a little bit about, you know, what makes them successful. Um, Let's dive a little bit more into that, you know. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to – 
the affiliate piece in particular. Um, are there any sort of strategies that you guys sort of tell influencers that they should take um, in order to, you know, see success in in driving sales? Um, are there any um, tips and tricks that you've given them, or just anything that you've uh, you've seen influencers do that you've uh, you can say, well, that across the board is something that most influencers should do. Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, in the early days, there was a lot of hesitation around using links, period. Um, I think that influencers, they thought that using links on their blog was almost almost inauthentic. They kind of felt like they were maybe being shady or something, and which they shouldn't have felt that way at all, I don't think. But um, the fact that they were earning, maybe they just were like, oh, I'm I'm really just here for the content. But at the end of the day, I think you can be there for the content and still have a desire to earn on that content. I mean, it's a business. It's a business. You have to hire a photographer to get that content. You're spending so much money and time is money as well. And so, you know, I just have to interject because I feel Mm -hmm. like that – I feel like people are are sort of getting over that now, but mm-hmm. there still is a bit of that still going out there. You know, basically, you know, oh, am I selling out by, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, not just for ward style, but all, you know, other sorts of revenue streams. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wonder if it's partially a gender thing, to be honest. Potentially. Yeah. Um, but I, regardless, in my opinion, and I, I don't know, I'd love to hear yours. I mean, it's a business at the end of the day. And yeah. so I think that it's how you present it to your audience. I think that's hugely important. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no shame in making money off of your hard work. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And exactly what you said, and it's how you position it, how you present it. Um, And going back to authenticity, I think that if you're honest about it, and the FTC actually requires that you're honest about it. So you do need to be upfront about it. But I don't think that anyone's going to shame you for um, if you actually bought a pair of jeans that you really love, linking to those. I actually get frustrated every once in a while. I'll see, you know, come across a blog um, and, you know, it's great content. I scroll through and they're not using links. They're not even like uh, trackable links. They're just not linking at all. And I'm I'm like, where is that dress from? I want that dress. And I get so frustrated. And it's something where as just a reader, I realized that I probably wouldn't continue to come back to this if I was constantly having to, the only way I was going to find it out was by commenting on the blog or commenting on the Instagram and saying, hey, like, where'd you get that dress? Love it. Thank you for the post. Um, it's just not realistic, and I'm an impatient person. <laughs> yeah, so. and everybody wants value, right? Yeah. With all influencer, you know, influencer uh, content, like that's such a huge piece of it. Mm-hmm. As a, you know, as a straight up consumer, you know, why are you going to go back? There's value there, whether mm-hmm. it's you know heartwarming value, or you know, oh, I love the aesthetics of her photos, or something a little bit more concrete, like she's making a recommendation. I have the same body type and aesthetic as exactly. her. And I am a New Yorker and I'm busy and I just want to click a link and like <laughs> – Just order it to my, to my apartment. <laughs> right. Exactly. And yeah. so there's value there. Absolutely. I think it's so important that you're calling attention to that because it's true. It is. Yeah. And and I think that, again, nowadays it is more commonplace. And um, when we tell influencers best practices, I think that it's you know use more links than less. But, it, again, always be authentic. So it's not about – if you wear if you're wearing a red dress in your post you don't necessarily need to unless the post is about the best new red dresses for fall mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily need to link to 10 different red dresses mm-hmm. i want to see the dress that you're wearing and depending on the price point i'd like to see a high and a low mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like if it's if it's if it or if it's a really high price point then maybe give me like a mid and then a low so i can try to recreate that look mm-hmm. that's in a way that's more accessible for me um so i think that there's a balance it's not about flooding your post with links and using them everywhere because that's inauthentic and that's very i think obvious and i don't think that that resonates well with an, with your readers mm-hmm. um but i think if you're really if you're coming from it coming to it from a perspective of I want to better serve my audience. I want to present a high-low option. I'm wearing a Chloe dress. I know not everyone everyone has a Chloe budget. Here's something that's, you know, 200 and here's something that's 50. Alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. Then that's you coming from it coming to it from a perspective of I want to better serve my audience and those are the influencers that I think really 
we see the best success with because they are using the links in their post, but they're doing it in a really authentic way. I love that. You know, it's so interesting. I never even thought of that, to be honest. Like, I've clicked so many people's links and I'll see that they've linked to a bunch of dresses that look the same, but that's probably why. And I never even really put two and two together, that mm-hmm. they're just giving you maybe even fit options. Right. And, like, not not saying, again, that you can't do that. There's a ton of, you know – LBD like posts or a mm-hmm. little or white dresses for sure. summer and you know the roundup stuff I love that mm-hmm. like Blair EDA does a, she does those a lot where she'll just kind of do different color schemes and do a lot of different options which is really fun mm-hmm. um, but again it's all in how you approach it sure. if you're if you're presenting it like here are my favorite picks and these are more options this mm-hmm. is the one I'm wearing here are the other ones that's great yeah. but I think that um, it's it's just all about how you present it no, definitely. And so you have, you know, you, you've you inspired and educated your influencers in the affiliate space on how to be successful there. Everyone's, you know, generating income, so everybody wins. Um, how does an influencer then transition into the, you know, the dedicated content piece and working with one brand in particular? That's a, that's such a great question. Um, I think that from our perspective, we obviously – my clients are, are brands for the most part at this point. And so brands come to us and they have, you know, what they're looking for. And like I said, we use a lot of data to to cast. Um, when influencers are interested in partnering with a specific brand um, through award style, what I usually recommend is that they start linking to that brand a lot because I need you to get on my radar. I need to see how you perform for them. And if you perform well, then I'm happy to put you on. And again, performing well doesn't mean that you drove $100,000 for them. But if I can prove that your audience clicked through and that they did, you know, some people made a purchase, then that is really interesting. And for brands, more and more, they're wanting to tap into new relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, they A lot of brands have separate budgets. They have the budget for their – what we would consider more brand ambassador group, the like diehards who are always linking. They love them. And that's great and they don't want to lose those people. But we want to we want to bring more people into that group. And so how do we do that? We focus on the influencers who have started to engage and we want to pay them to do dedicated content to see if we could really um, build a bigger relationship out of that. So definitely linking to that brand consistently, um, getting your audience familiar um, because that way you're going to show up just from a data perspective. Mm -hmm. But even outside of that, I don't think that there's any shame in reaching out. And this kind of goes back to our early com- earlier conversation about just, you know, when we were getting started and conversations that we were having, um, not being intimidated by people. If you want to work with a brand, you should do some LinkedIn stalking, some good old-fashioned LinkedIn yes, stalking. Yes. Find the person who is in charge of influencer marketing, who's in charge of, you know, experiential, whatever it might be. You know, you'll – when you do a little bit of digging, you'll kind of find the right titles um, and and just reach out and see if they're interested in, in sponsoring something and also come to them with a story. Don't come to them asking. This, again, goes back to our previous thing. Mm-hmm. Ask them what they need, what stories they're telling this this season. How um, can I help you? Exactly. Like here's what I have to bring to the table and I think it's a really good fit because of XYZ. Um, I'm traveling you know, I have a trip coming up that I'd love to partner with Brand X on. If is this in line with what you guys might be looking for, it could be a good partnership. Mm-hmm. And presenting it that way is really powerful. Um, and our brands, it's always really great because we have brands who we work with really closely that have ongoing programs with us. So they're running stuff through Award Style, but they'll reach out and say, "Hey, I got this email from so and so. I, you know, we let let's put her on something." And I'm like, "Great, you're the boss." And we and we do that. And mm-hmm. so it really, we've seen it work. Whether it happens. To reward style or whether it happens individually just directly through the brand. Um, but you, if you don't ask for it, then it's not going to happen. No, absolutely. And being really specific about what you can do to help them, mm-hmm. right? Not just, I deserve this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that – and there are people that I think if you do that once or twice, you will learn quickly that that does not go over well. Um, and But in, in general, I think if you want something from somebody – no matter what industry you're in, you have to approach it 
with what you can bring to the table and why they should want to give that thing to you. Right. Absolutely. And how you can help everybody's bottom line. Exactly. It's a business. Absolutely. For sure. Um, and so doing a little LinkedIn stalking. I love that. Um, just kind of connecting to the right people. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and then doesn't do, do, does everybody in the reward style network have um, a liaison in reward style that they can speak to and maybe sort of ask these questions to? Absolutely. We have a lot of resources on our website. So we have a whole section of our blog that's dedicated to content around kind of everything from SEO for your website to how do I work with brands and how do I build those partnerships. So we try to provide a lot of resources to influencers and just like a general level kind of an FAQ uh, format. Mm-hmm. However, um, every influencer that's on Reward Style has a dedicated, has an account um, manager, and whether it's uh, whether it's a specific person, they have a person's name, or it's just our influencer um, support team who are real people. It doesn't go to like some, you know, it's not automated answers. If you send an email to that team, they're going to get back to you. Um, and so, if they do have questions about that, they can absolutely reach out. Um, I. Of course, in my Instagram profile, I have, you know, reward style, like to know it. And I get DMs all the time from mm-hmm. influencers who are asking, you know, more information. And that's not even necessarily my, my role to work directly with the influencers. But I'm, you know, I'm always happy. I will point them in the right direction. I will connect them with the right person. Mm-hmm. Or if they just reach out and say, Hey, I'm, I'm really interested in working with brand X and I can work really well for them. And, I know that you work with the brands. Could you just put me on your – I want to put myself on your radar. I literally put them on my radar and I'll email our team and say, hey, here's this. Like let's see if we can put her somewhere because I appreciate that. I appreciate somebody who reaches out and asks for what they want. Absolutely. You know, if you don't ask for it, no one's going to know. You need to do that so much more often. Exactly. I mean what's the best way to get what you want in life? It's Mm -hmm. by putting it out there in the universe. Right. right. Absolutely. And so talk to me a little bit about the variety of different brands that you work with, whether it's, you know, our, you know, I think of the origins of like to know it and reward style and it's very fashion oriented. But you mm-hmm. guys have so many more verticals now. What do you directly work in? So I'm really focused on more what we consider enterprise brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so brands that are it, that's really defined by um what their investment is in the influencer marketing space. So it could be a smaller brand that really is kind of putting the majority of their marketing budget in influencer marketing, mm-hmm. or it could be a larger, you know, multi-brand, you know, nationally recognized company that's also spending in that space. So that's really my focus personally. Um, however, I mentioned earlier, I have a team of um, eight uh, eight young women who are all amazing. And they're kind of focused on a mix of different spaces, um, SMB, as well as like midsize and more some handle some enterprise clients as well. So we really focus actually on um, we don't divide it based on vertical. And I think it's really just because more often than not, the influencers don't focus based on vertical. You have fashion influencers, but then she gets engaged and now she's a bridal influencer and then she's buying a home and then she becomes an interior decor influencer, um, has kiddos, and now she's talking about you know kids' brands. And so we've really, I think, in an effort to make sure that each of our account managers that works with the brands does have a breadth of experience and isn't pigeonholed. We do have, um, you know, account managers that'll have a few home brands, a few beauty brands, a few fashion, some lifestyle, maybe some travel or a hotel brand. Um, it's also fun for the account manager. I can't imagine. Like, I love beauty. I love fashion. I love home. But I think I would get really bored if I only yeah, focus on that one thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's great. Also, just from a mentoring perspective or, you know, an employee perspective who mm-hmm. works for you, you know, to be able to get a wide variety of experience, professional experience mm-hmm. by working with so many different types of brands. What are your favorite categories to work on personally? Well, I – I mean, I love I love kids stuff because there's nothing cuter than like adorable children like wearing backpacks for like a back to school bus. <laughs> Absolutely. So I really love that. But mm-hmm. I think now, based on the time in my life, I'm you know in my early 30s and getting married, and I'm you know when my fiance and I moved in together and we were blending our home, um, I was so I was stalking like to know at home that mm-hmm. handle and just like looking at all that content, saving imagery, and the home stuff is super 
relevant, I think, to my life now. And Mm -hmm. it's where if I'm going to spend money, that's kind of where I want to spend my money. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely purchase clothing regularly more than I should probably. (laughs) Online? Um, Are you going to stores? Are you purchasing online? Online exclusively. I have not purchased anything in a store in so long. And I think it it was already before I lived in New York. But living in New York is just not conducive to to shopping. And, you know, especially if it's one thing if I was going to go pick up um, like if I have a friend's birthday and I was like, I'm going to go pick up a gift, I pretty much will just go to ABC home and like find something. Mm-hmm. But if you're, you know, you've got like a date night or a wedding or something and you're looking, you have to go to all these different stores and I don't have time for that. And it's too loud and too hot and I'm not carrying bags in the subway. So I do, um, I do shopping hauls at home, Yeah, <laughs> order from everywhere, return whatever I don't want. Uh, yep. Um, but but yeah, I'm a I'm an exclusively online shopper. <laughs> I love it. But I mean a good, you know, return policy is like everything. And exactly. I feel like most places are getting privy to that, you know? Totally. And you'll give them so much more business in the long haul if they give you like a free return label. Oh my gosh, absolutely. If when I get to check out and I see that there's no like it's no free shipping over like 50 or no return, I'm just like I'll find this somewhere else, basically. Yeah, people need to listen to that. Yeah. <laughs> people need to listen to that. Um, and so in your role, you manage a $20 million influencer marketing portfolio um, to get really specific mm-hmm. um, uh, for clients that range from startups to multi-million dollar companies, like you were saying, and they span from fashion, lifestyle, travel, home. Um, how do you tailor your approach to the distinct needs of each client? You know, I think that I, I mentioned earlier that we don't really have account managers who focus on one vertical or necessarily um, one specific type of brand. Mm-hmm. Um, we do – I think what we find to be most important is actually to focus more on um, the level of investment with influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. So a small startup can sometimes have the same amount of investment as a large company like I mentioned before. Um, and I find that regardless of the industry that, or the rather the vertical, mm-hmm. that it really depends on the level of where they're at in their influencer marketing journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm focused primarily on enterprise brands that have a large spend that are looking to build out like a year long plan. That's kind of where my bread and butter is. Mm-hmm. Um, however, of course, when I first started, I was working with tiny brands and just trying to get them to spend $5,000 mm-hmm. a year on influencer marketing. Mm-hmm. So I've done that as well. But we have, um, my team handles the 20, that the 20 million is in reference to the team. And so my team handles that amount. And we have team members, like I said, who focus more on SMB because SMB is small business, um, if they're spending 20000 a year to 50000 a year, they're going to have different needs. They're going to have a different focus. Um, you're likely working with a lot more micro-influencers. And it's also, I think, from a also from a professional development standpoint, I think as an account manager, you need to work with those smaller brands before you could ever develop something longer, you know, larger scale um, with an enterprise level client. Sure. Um, so we really, I don't think that it really matters what vertical it's in. I think it's really just on where they're at in that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you find that, like I said, so many times. Even in beauty, it's like our beauty brands aren't necessarily only wanting to focus on beauty influencers. Mm-hmm. They want they want the fashion influencer who's getting ready for a date night with her husband. And they want, you know, lifestyle or they want the mom who's like a five-minute, you know, makeup hack when you have to get your kids out for school in the morning. Um, so it really is – we find that more and more brands are really diverse in who they want to partner with in terms of the types of influencers so that it really just kind of depends on what level of program you want. And I love that you're saying that because I, I keep hearing that so much more often. So I want to instill it in people, mm-hmm. which is I hear that brands are really interested in the stories more so than like just like a plug and play, like makeup to a makeup influencer, fashion right. to a fashion influencer. Like they're really looking for an interesting way to tell their story through an influencer story. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're hearing as well? Absolutely. And storytelling, I always, whenever I talk to brands, I tell them like that's what you're paying for. You're not necessarily – at the end of the day, yes, we all have goals. We have, you know, traffic and sales goals. But really, it's about putting your story into the hands of an influencer who can personalize it and make it relevant to her audience in a way that, you know, your ad in Vogue could never do. Um, and in addition, 
it's also about longer term partnerships. You mentioned like the plug and play that still happens and there's definitely still value in that. However, I think more often than not, brands are looking to when they're assessing a partnership, they don't that you're not they're seeing less value from a single blog post and Instagram about XYZ. They see a lot more value in a maybe three month partnership, six month partnership where there's a few blog posts. And in addition to those dedicated blog posts, the influencers are also just linking organically. So that from and you think about it from the reader perspective and it makes so much sense. You know, if I follow a blogger, even if it's I'm a huge fan of her and I trust everything she says if she links to a brand for the first time ever, I've never seen it before, I might click through and be like, oh, that's interesting. And and I may even convert if it's something that really is in line with what I'm looking for at that time. However, if I continue to see her linking to that and I'm like, wow, you know, she really, she keeps carrying that handbag or like she really loves those sunglasses or she keeps talking about that super goop sunscreen, then maybe the third or fourth time when I'm and when my needs may have shifted and I'm actually ready to make that purchase, then that becomes top of mind for me. And I say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to that post because I remember she was talking about that and I'm going to buy that item. Mm -hmm. And that really, it, it makes sense when you think about it, that it's a longer term approach. And yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that you're sort of going there about, I think that's that's some people's pushback to affiliate marketing mm -hmm. in the first place, right? I've heard, you know, I mean, I can put a you know a, a link out there to that'll go through reward style or an equivalent, and it'll you know send them through to the product that I'm recommending. But if it's not the exact time in their life, or they're they have X amount of money to spend <clears throat> at this very second, it might not convert right then. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about that, you know, and and how you guys address those sorts of concerns because these are just like affiliate marketing concerns in general, you know. Right. Um, how to be successful but realistic. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, not everything you post is going to convert. Um, and from an influencer perspective, they're constantly learning, you know, about their audience. And for better or worse, the internet is a very honest place. People will tell you exactly what they think. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we've heard influencers that'll talk about, oh, I did this. You know, I remember one time one of our influencers did a Tide Pod campaign. It wasn't through us, but they had done it. And they, I mean, we, I feel like everyone was looking at all the comment sections and pe the comment section and people were just like, this is, you never talk about this. Like, this is such product placement. And, and at the end of the day, like, yes, it, it was product placement, but you know, your, your followers will tell you exactly what they think. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, I think that really the key is is understanding that, yes, not everything is going to work, but as long as you're posting stuff that is true to you, then that's what matters. And from a brand perspective, if you're partnering with a luxury brand and you post about like their bag and the, the bags, you know, are retailing at over $1,000 a bag, the brand is also very realistic about that. I very rarely work with brands who have extremely high price points that have expectations of people, you know, of getting necessarily a positive ROI, they're really concerned about the storytelling and the familiarization of their brand and aligning themselves with an influencer so that at the point when maybe that person later on down the line or at Christmas time, they want to tell their mom, mm -hmm. this is my gift that I want, you know, that, that kind of stuff goes on the list. And yes, like, are we tracking that long tail? We can only, it only goes so far, right. but the brands understand that. And so I don't think that influencers should say, well, I'm not going to, you know, use a link to this because it won't convert and then it'll look bad. Like that's, that's not really the mindset. Um, it should just be, you should post about what's authentic to you. You should listen to your followers and post about things that you think that they would like, but they wouldn't follow you if they didn't like the stuff that you liked. Sure. So yeah, I, I, I think that, um, it's, it's a little bit like living and learning, but they're, it's not bad to to post a link to something that you think maybe your followers won't convert on. And not bad. I just like – I can't wait for the tech to sort of catch up mm -hmm. where, you know, there could just be a cookie that's placed on that person's computer so that even if they purchase that item, like – Three years from now, yes, it's like it. You get credit for it because mm -hmm. you were the the originator of that idea in their mind, right? You know, something like that, like really long term. Because I think that that's, you know, and I, 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 I that's what I get concerned about as like mm -hmm. an advocate for influencers. And I'm totally. sure you feel the same way. Well, a big question is also like in store conversion. If you mm -hmm, think about right. and going back to luxury items, if I'm going to purchase a Chanel bag. 
I'm probably not going to buy it online because it's such a huge purchase. It's right. really like that's a lifetime purchase. And even for I'm, an online shopper, exactly. like there are certain items. I will, I'm going to go in store. Yeah. I want to like be offered a glass of champagne because I'm about to drop some <laughs> yes. serious cash. And I want to have that experience because mm-hmm. it's a luxury experience that, that purchasing, you know, process is a luxury experience. Yeah. I don't just want to add it to my bag, you know, on mode operandi and be like, oh, okay, it's going to be here in a couple of days. Yeah. There are definitely people that do that. Sure. And, but those people probably purchase luxury items more frequently yeah. than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for the average shopper, they're, they're going to go in store. And there are some things that people will always go in store for. And I think the brands know that. And and in some ways, like we try to address that on a campaign basis. It's easier if you're saying, okay, we're partnering with five influencers for this campaign and we can maybe give them an in-store code for like a free gift that people can use. So Mm -hmm. if they go in, they can say, oh, it's, you know, Christy 20. And if they check out with that, then we can give them a free gift and then we know that that came from that influencer. Right. But that's such a manual like way to do it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if – I'm sure eventually the tech will actually catch up where we can track those in-store purchases and, you know – figure out that person engaged online with our brand. They click through the site and now they're in store. Track like, their credit card or exactly. something. Exactly. Like, I mean, it's, it's going to happen. It's a little creepy. It is a little creepy. But like, I just think that's where everything is going. Exactly. I, I mean, and it's yeah. a conversation every time we go – every time I go to conferences, anytime we're talking about retail, when we're talking about influencers, because brands know, they know that there are a lot of people that – engage with this content online and they go in store and they make the purchase. Right. Um, but all of the evidence of that is very anecdotal at this point. And so I would love to get to the point where we can really prove the full value. Yeah, I love that. And what would you say to those influencers who who don't like using affiliate links? I guess I would just say that if you if you really want to do this, I think that you have to first think of yourself as a um, as a business man or woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a content creator, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of the pushback is around this idea that I, you know, I just want to create this content. I want to put it out there. But if you want to do that, you, you know, unless you have a unique financial situation, um, you need to find a way to make money doing it. And there, and there is no shame in getting paid for the traffic and sales that you are driving for brands. Like you should absolutely get that credit because they're benefiting and they're, you know, and, and other than, other than, you know, them maybe seeing that you post about them and maybe sending you some free product, free product doesn't pay your electric bill. No, it does not. And so, and a lot of our influencers, even ones who are doing regular collab, like partners, partnerships with brands still are earning the majority of their, their like monthly payment is coming or their monthly salary is coming from commissionable and trackable links. Mm-hmm. And so I would just say test if you're nervous about it, just test it with your audience. Start replacing. I'm sure you're using links of some sort. You may be just linking directly. Mm-hmm. Just try it for a month and see if you see what your audience response is. Again, you have to listen to your audience. You need to be authentic with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but just try it out and see if they notice a difference. I would say that 99% of them will not notice that there's a you know, our style link instead of a straight up, you know, whatever link to brand. Steve Madden or yeah. whatever. Um, and, and see if you make some money and, you know, you may, you may change your mind at that point. What percentage would you say an influencer working with reward style, what percentage are, is due to their affiliate and what percentage is due to their, you know, brand deals? In terms of the revenue that they're making, it really ranges widely, but the majority of our influencers earn – the majority of the earnings that our influencers have is from is from the commissionable links. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're still earning the most from that. Mm-hmm. And there definitely are – I think the exception would be if there are influencers who are in a longer-term partnership with a brand that mm-hmm. they're getting, you know, sort of a monthly payment for mm-hmm. a longer-term thing. And how do influencers get – those longer term deals. I think that's all that influencers are looking for of these course. days. I would say take initial, you know, if there's an initial partnership that comes up, take it, you know, and um, because the brands are, it's a business, they're going to assess who has the most value for them. Um, and I always tell influencers to try to go above and beyond when they do a, a partnership. And going above and beyond doesn't mean giving away free content necessarily. Um, I think that there's like a misconception that if you're being paid for a blog post and Instagram that you actually need to do 
going above and beyond would be doing like four Instagrams or doing like three extra blog posts. That's not really the expectation. I think that it's doing a really excellent job with those and then linking organically to the brand before and after to really make sure that you're priming your audience for that content and then following up. So like I said, that the the audience has that experience of, oh, I see her linking to this. Oh, here's a blog post about this so I can learn more. Oh, she's still linking to it. So she must really be a fan of this product or this brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of – I think that that's like a really great way to show that you're a strong partner. And brands notice that. You know, They'll reach out and say, we want to keep working with her because we noticed that she wore those that pair of denim again that we gave her. And and she wasn't paid to do that. And that's awesome. She's still wearing it. And it's clear that she really loves the brand. Is that something they should follow up and point out? Like, just wanted to let you know and show you that, like, this post got a lot of engagement and I happened to organically post about you guys. Like, Mm -hmm. what's a good way to conclude a partnership and and make it clear that you want to continue it? So we we actually work with – on the brand side, we do a full recap showing the full performance for influencers. And what's unique, again, going back to the data um, and what we encourage, we always encourage influencers to kind of do that additional linking because when we show the full performance, we don't just show the performance from that blog post. We actually show how much revenue and clicks that influencer drove from the time that they posted to six weeks after. So the influencer doesn't necessarily need to reach out and say, oh, I did this extra stuff because it'll come out. Mm. We'll show, okay, they drove $500 from that blog post, but then they drove, you know, at the end of it, they actually drove in total 1500 which means that they were organically linking and linking in other places, and mm-hmm. those were obviously converting. Or they drove this much traffic on the post, but this much overall. Mm-hmm. So we like to show that, again, we like to focus on the full story and show the full value of that partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and brands notice that. And those are the influencers that brands want to re-up with again. They're like, oh, wow, like she really engaged with us beyond that dedicated post. Mm-hmm. And her audience obviously loves the product because they they converted. They went to the site and purchased. Mm-hmm. So let's put her on our next campaign. And how transparent are you guys with that data for the influencers or the influencers manager? You know, do they have full access to that data? Absolutely. Every influencer has a dashboard. And mm-hmm. so, again, we treat them like small business owners because mm-hmm. that's what they are. Mm-hmm. And you can't make decisions without real data and information. Mm-hmm. So every influencer in their dashboard is actually able to see um, how each link that they use performs. And they can also see who their top brands are. Um, they can see, you know, how their like to know it posts are performing. So they have access to a ton of data. They're able to see how they did for a certain partnership. And we have had influencers reach out and say, hey, I did really well in this partnership. I, you know, I noticed that my audience really loved it. If there's anything else, we'd love to, you know, I'd love to be considered. And usually at that point, though, if they did well, I'm like, honey, you're already on the next campaign. (laughs) We're aware. (laughs) We're aware. (laughs) And my final question for you, Lauren, this is a a little bit more personal, but Mm -hmm. personal and professional. What do you wish someone had told your younger self that would have given you a professional or personal advantage today? I think that it would really be to not be afraid to talk to people, which is – I feel like we've touched a lot – touched on this quite a bit actually in our conversation so far. But I remember just being um, as much of an – I'm very outgoing, but I also have like – even to this day, going up to somebody who's more senior, I literally have to kind of be like, you can do this. It's totally fine. Just pep be talk. cool. Yeah. Do a little pep talk. But when I was younger, I there were people I was I would be in a room with with individuals. And um, I worked at Texas Monthly when I was in college, which is the national magazine of Texas. <laughs> um, but it's a it's a major publication. And there I remember being in, in a room with um a group of really influential people, major editors, people outside of that Texas Monthly community, and just being so intimidated to go up and introduce myself and thinking they don't want to talk to me. I'm not important. Like, you know, they're just going to totally blow me off. And like we said, usually the case is that they're not going to do that. As long as you go up and you respectfully introduce yourself and say, you know, I'm a fan of your work or I'd love to have a conversation with you, a longer conversation at another time or whatever it might be. Um, people are really like not mean. They're not going to attack you. It's going to be totally fine. 
And it took me a while to learn that. But I think there were opportunities that I missed out on when I was younger because I didn't take that initiative and I didn't trust myself and have that confidence. And so um, especially in this industry, it really is all about who you know. And it is that I think in a lot of industries. But because this is growing so much and we talk about this in WIM, like these partnerships are so important and these relationships. And even if you're in a competitive space, like it's important that we – that we talk and we have these conversations because, you know, I think it's like all boats rise, you know, it's rising with the tide. And so not being afraid to go up and introduce yourself to somebody and have a conversation with them and not be worried about like, oh, am I not important enough? Am I not, you know, am I not high up enough for them to actually have the conversation? Because even a CEO of a company is, I was at a brand recently and the CEO is the namesake of the company. And he walked by and I was like, oh, I think that that's like him. <laughs> and I – like a part of me initially was like I want to say something. And then, of course, I caught myself and I was like I'm not important enough. Like he doesn't want to talk to me. And then I was just like, no, you're you're going to get up and just say hello. And I, and I introduced myself and I said who I was. And it's like, oh, it's great to meet you. Like, oh, I, I, I know we work with you guys. It's like so great. And – you know, it's not like my life was changed in that moment, but those small things make a difference. And if he's assessing different programs, you know, if his marketing team comes to him and says, this is where we think we should spend our money, maybe that moment will stick with him and and we'll get that budget versus a competitor. And so I think just not being afraid to go and have those conversations and introduce yourself is like such a huge thing that most, especially females, I think struggle with this way more. And you just kind of like got to get over it and put on your big girl britches and just go introduce yourself to people. And I love that. And the only thing that I'll add that's been my experience personally mm -hmm. is just that I feel like um, – I feel like the older I get, the more I realize that networking isn't about putting on this persona or of, you know, I'm an equal, I'm professional enough, mm -hmm. I'm this, I'm that. The best networking really happens when you just really get in touch with who you are and feel comfortable enough to be that person. Absolutely. Because it's about building relationships and just being being natural and being comfortable. Mm -hmm. And sure, there's talk about the business aspect, but what's memorable is probably something completely unrelated. Like I personally love to foster dogs, mm -hmm. right? And so if I go to a networking event and I'm just like, oh, I got to tell you about this dog that I just fostered and they happen to love dogs as well, that's probably going to be what's most memorable to them at the end of the day, something personal, something real mm -hmm. that you connect over. Um, and then you can talk about the business. Absolutely. And that also makes I think it also throws people off their guard a little bit mm -hmm. if you go in with something personal. Mm -hmm. um, I love that. I totally recommend that, especially with like new clients or just meeting someone new. Start off with something personal, even just asking them like how their weekend is or, you know, do a little bit of reconnaissance and see, you know, go to their Instagram, see like if they were traveling recently and then you can I say, oh, like – where where have you traveled recently? You already kind of know because mm -hmm. you're you're a bit of a stalker, but mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think having those real conversations it makes people relax, and then when you do have the business conversations, it's so much easier. And yeah, I think that people respond so much better to that. People I respond love that. well to it, but also I would hope that it inspires a, a woman or a man who's who's the one approaching the person in power to just feel a little more comfortable. Yeah, you know, it's not as high stakes of a situation as you maybe convince yourself that it is, mm -hmm. um, people will respond really well the more that you're just comfortable being yourself. A hundred percent. And they're going to remember you for that too. Yeah, absolutely. Lauren, thank you so much for chatting today. Where can everyone find you if they want to connect with you? Well, um, as you said, Director of Brand Partnerships at Reward Style. So you can uh, find me on Instagram at Lauren A. Carlson. Um, I'm getting married soon, so I may have to do an Instagram update, but TBD. <laughs> um, and feel free to LinkedIn stalk me. I love that. I'll, I do it to everyone else. So. Perfect. <laughs> yep. You can find me there. Thank you everyone so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We love comments. So comment on this podcast and we may shout you out on our next episode. Join us next time and thanks for tuning in.